Luke um, writes extensively in the Bible. He probably is the second most uh, extensive writer after Paul, and probably writes more if we ex- exclude Hebrews from as a, a book that Paul did write. One of the things that when we read through the Gospel of Luke that we will pick out that Luke spends time showing us how Jesus has time for those who are on the margins. And he takes time um, from the busyness of the crowd around him to stop at the bottom of a sycamore tree and to go uh, for a meal with a tax collector who was completely despised by his own people. He had turned against his own people, was collecting taxes for the occupying forces, the occupying nation of Rome. He chides Simon um, for pushing aside um, the woman. And he, next week we'll find out how that um, the Lord Jesus has time for women, and particularly um, the women of ill repute. And so that is why we were looking at this um, Gospel of Luke um, to see how that the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save the lost. He hasn't come to call the righteous, but he's come to seek and to save those that are lost. I suppose you may have talked to Zacchaeus and he would have said um, a few days earlier, I'm not that lost. I I know what I'm doing. Um, Outwardly, he had it all together. He had struck uh, an amazing deal with the Romans and had added to the deal of his own accord and was living a wealthy lifestyle. But yet, he was still lost. And we sometimes associate those amongst us who are lost as those who display an evidence of lostness, of hopelessness. And, and yet, in the quietness of our own hearts, maybe as we wake up from a restless night's sleep, we may ask the question of ourselves, why are we here? What is the purpose of life? Who am I? Where am I heading? Where's my career taking me? Where's my successful business taking me? Where's the efforts um, to get a great education? Where will that land me? Where will that take me? And it indicates something in our own hearts of our lostness, of something that we are unsure about. And we come tonight to look at um, Luke chapter 1 and Zacchaeus. He probably doesn't necessarily jump out as someone who is lost. And yet... When we look at his innermost thinking, his innermost thoughts, they display something of a lostness. In a chaotic world, in a world that he um, was disappointed with, a world that didn't meet his own um, expectations as a priest. So can we turn to um, Luke chapter 1? And we're going to look, his name is Zechariah in some versions, and it's Zacharias in other versions, I think uh, one was more of a Hebrew, another was more Greek. Um, so forgive me if I um, switch between the two, because I was brought up in Zacharias, and now I'm reading a later version of my later life as uh, Zechariah. Let's um, look at verse 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have taught. Um, the introduction um, in its original form um, would have been quite a sophisticated style of writing um, as he's writing to this uh, person called Theophilus and who was probably a Roman or a Greek official. But then his language switches a little bit and he wants um, more to know about the story of Jesus. In those days, Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And they appeared to him, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right-hand side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will have be great among the, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong wine or drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, and that is the Lord. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said, I am Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. um, And for five months, she kept herself hidden. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among women. Among people, sorry. Uh, can I just take up two verses just for the sake of time and we'll try to connect them as we just go through our little talk. Um, uh, yeah, verse 30. No, verse 37. And this is Mary who is the cousin of the Lord Jesus and was to be, uh, is to become... Um, the cousin of um, Elizabeth and was to become the mother of the Lord Jesus. And she said this in response, Behold, in verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel 
um, departed. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed. And just to complete um, verse 63. And Zechariah asked for a tablet, a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Fear came upon all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them led them upon their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Who was Luke? He's the writer of, of this gospel of Luke. He's also the writer of the Acts of the Apostles. And, and when we're studying God's word, it's often we need to just see what lies um, behind it. Who is the author of these two books? We first meet Luke in chapter 16 of Acts um, in a place called Troas. And um, he is a writer. At that point, he changes the personal pronouns to, to we uh, as he joins Paul in his missionary journeys. Paul also um, refers to him in Colossians as his uh, beloved physician. He also refers to him in, again in Second Timothy uh, when all the rest had left him at his second um, trial. The only person who was left um, was Luke and he calls him faithful. So he's beloved uh, physician and he is faithful. Um, Luke was a Gentile uh, and Luke probably came to know the Lord Jesus, became a Christian um, through Paul's ministry and and his first missionary journey, maybe in Troas, and was so impressed with the gospel and so impressed with Paul and his mission that he joined. And I'm sure um, Paul was thankful that a a doctor had joined his team um, because it says that Paul um, had a thorn in his side and probably was a physical ailment of some sort and Luke was there for all of the the difficult times that Paul got himself into and helped him. Um, So Paul, uh, Luke went along and he's very much in the background but I cannot help but think that he was a great listener. Um, Doctors are always great listeners, not right, Rachel? <laughs> and they're really keen uh, when they're finding out what's wrong with you and diagnosing the issue that they find something about your medical history, something about your family. You know, if you're not well, does anyone else suffer from the same symptoms in your family? Um, do you have any um, sort of history of that? That is really, really important. And Luke was that sort of a guy who would have been taking notes of all of the, uh, what he had heard and what was said. And Paul would be communicating in the tradition, the oral tradition that was at that time, all about the Lord Jesus, um, where he grew up, what happened to him, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He was speaking about how the Old Testament um, was fulfilled, that he was the Messiah, that he, this gospel now was not only to the Jews, but was now to the Gentiles. And Luke could not help being impressed by it. And he must have had a notebook full of facts, a notebook full of interesting comments that Paul had made. He must have listened. And he must have listened very carefully when Paul was, uh, as we just had our series on, handing on the baton. And Paul said to Timothy, be diligent. His parting words to Timothy, young Timothy, as he picked up the baton for Paul, he says, be diligent. 
and be a good workman or a good scholar of God's word, dividing the word um, carefully and communicating that carefully to others. And that is why when Luke, uh, he could say that it seemed good to me also and that I should give you an orderly account. That was Luke's um, raison d'etre for his writing. He also is someone who interlinks this with the, um, the historical facts of the time. And even in her, in her fifth verse, he says, in the days of Herod. Everything that he speaks about, he links to something that is happening in the secular history. So what his readers of that time would have understood just what was happening. And it was tied to people, it was tied to a place, and it was tied to other events. And the person he's writing to is Theophilus. And Theophilus was probably a Roman, probably was an official. Some have suggested that Theophilus um, was needing to hear all of the facts and that Luke was writing the facts. So when it came to um, Paul's trial, or his first and second trial, that um, Luke had given this orderly account, a defense of the gospel. And he, he, he writes to Theophilus and um, he says, I want you to be certain about these things. It is quite likely that Theophilus was a disciple of, of Luke and that he had come to faith and Luke was grounding him in, in the faith. And Paul also, he may have picked up from Paul when he, he says in Ephesians that we should be rooted and grounded in the faith in love. I suppose one of the first things I think when we read this, these opening verses of Luke as Christians, as those who would seek to evangelize, we need to be grounded in the truth. We need to know the story of Jesus and all of the little twists and turns to read Luke's gospel and to read the Acts of the Apostles with thoughtfulness, with time, and to muse over the little facts that we quick quite quickly glance over. Sometimes we satisfy ourselves too easily by the version that we get in Sunday school. It is very appropriate that we tell kids and children the stories of the gospel. It's very appropriate they understand what it was like for Joshua this morning and, and to hear that story. But it's also very appropriate, us as we grow in our faith, as we are rooted and grounded, that we go back over the same stories. We look for other little nuances, look for little other facts um, that um, we may have missed the first time. And rightly so. We cannot give children the same data as we give um, more mature adults. So Luke wants us um, to, to be diligent in our knowledge of the gospel. But he also he seems to have a love and a respect for, for Theophilus. He refers, to, and Theophilus means a friend of God, but he refers to him with his title, Most Excellent Theophilus. He has a respect for him. He has time for him. And this comes across in the, the other studies that we will do over, over the month, that he has time. He's emulating the Lord Jesus. He takes time to talk to them. He takes time to talk to his audience and takes them on a journey of faith. And that was his purpose. I wonder as we go into Community Week, could we just think of one person and say, that will be my uh, person that I will take time for. I will pray for them. I will talk to them. I will take the opportunities and explain the gospel as it is before us in the Bible. God is not expecting us to come up with a new story. In fact, quite the opposite. He doesn't want a new story. 
And Paul criticizes those uh, later on who came up with another gospel. We have the gospel, and we just need to communicate it in a nice, clear, and simple language. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. The Holy Spirit will bring saving grace and saving power in his own time. So, um, can we just flick on the PowerPoint? I think that is up there. So the first point uh, I want to leave with is, is a cur- uh, that this is a careful writer, is Luke. Can I come to the next one? Uh, is a challenging worldview. And Luke, very, very, just very quickly, draws something, a comparison. In Luke's gospel, we will see comparisons. That's his style of writing, something to make us think. And when you're reading through it, look for that. Look for these little couples, these little um, comparisons, these little contrasts, quite sometimes quite stark contrasts. The first one is Herod and Zechariah. We've read a little bit about Zechariah. He was righteous before God. And, but we also know about Herod. Herod was called Herod the Great. And Herod had no entitlement to the throne. He was just a puppet king by the, for the Romans. And the only way that he kept power was just simply killing people. And if they threatened him in any way, he murdered him. His mother-in-law, his three of his sons, John the Baptist, he just simply murdered him. He was an evil man. And then Luke has this wonderful contrast of um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he says they were both righteous before God. Not only did they claim to be righteous, but they walked the righteous walk. They walked blameless in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But, and they were advanced in years. The, the King James Version calls it um, that they were stricken in years. So that is the, the contrast. And if you were... Um, Zechariah living at that time, it would have been quite difficult to look around as he made his way from his little town up in the hill and coming down in Jerusalem, and we'll be up in Jerusalem as well, um, and he would have passed Roman officials, Roman soldiers, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, some of them would be Herod's own personal army. He would have come into the the temple forecourts and saw the expense that Herod had lavished upon the temple and upon his own, his own palace. If he had traveled up to Caesarea, he would have seen the, the port that he had, uh, had built. He'd seen the road. He'd been aware of the trade deals that he had done. And yet, the nation of the Jews were far from God. They had turned what God had given them into a uh, rules and regulations. The Pharisees had multiplied and multiplied the way of life that they should have to live. It was so constricted and so restricted to their way. There was a Sanhedrin of 70 men of, of the elite who were determining how they should live. And yet, really, the glory of God had departed. Even though there was a veil of the temple between the holies of holies and the holy place, God wasn't really there. They were simply going through the motions and this is the contrast that we have with Herod, this challenging environment. And yet, prayer went up. Yet he was righteous. Yet he lived his life. Possibly today, when we look around us and we think of evangelism, we think of witness, witnessing for the Lord Jesus, we very simply and very quickly get despondent. We look at the obstacles and we think that this time is the worst of all times to witness. This is the worst of all ages to be a Christian. 
This is the worst of all ages to live out our faith in the public square. Can I suggest to you that this was, our times are no worse than when it was for Zechariah and Elizabeth? Because they were threatening. Because they had a king. And God's promises was that God's scepter, or the scepter for Israel, the kingship would never pass from the, the tribe of Judah. Jacob spoke to Judah and his dying and gave him this promise that the scepter would not depart from Judah. Here was an Edomite. Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. And there he was on the throne, abusing the Jews. For 400 years, they'd heard nothing. We finished up with Nehemiah last week and all of the problems that Nehemiah had um, come up against and how they had built the temple and yet worship hadn't flowed. The priests themselves had given up and they were intermarrying. They were, um, and Malachi tells us that their offerings were the worst of all offerings. And God speaks to Malachi and asks him that the priests need to come back again. And nothing had happened for 400 years. A very difficult time. But Zacharias was compliant. Every morning he must have woke up and as he hobbled out of bed, this King James Version said he was stricken in years. Something that sort of gives you a little insight that he was well past his prime of youth. He was not doing the things that he used to, he, he, he used to be able to do. Probably moving from his home down to Jerusalem to, into the temple to serve daily was quite a task for him. And he would speak over to Elizabeth and realize that her name meant God is faithful. His own name meant that God is watchful. And he, and he looked around the table, and it was only the two of them. He had no family. And it looked as if the future was bleak. There was no one to look after him. There was no one to provide for him. And there was no social service. There was no national health service. There was none of those things. And they were totally dependent on family. And this day, he made his way down as he would to the temple. He was compliant. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And he did it out of compliance week by week. And lo and behold, he comes down this week and someone says to him, it's your turn, Zechariah. You're into the holy place of the temple. There were about 20,000 priests. And to get this opportunity to go in and burn incense in the temple only happened at best once in a lifetime. To have this privilege for a week to go in and burn incense after the, off- after the offering. To take the- for someone to take the coals into the holies of holies to stand before the veil into the, uh, into the, in between the holies of holies and the holy place and the lights of the candles on the left hand, the showbread on the right, and this small golden altar in the middle. And his job, this honorable job, this majestic job for one week, morning and night, was to take those coals from the altar, to put them in a dish and to add the incense. And the incense would rise up and the people outside would, would join him in prayer. What an honor as he prayed for the nation. As he prayed every morning and every night that the Messiah would come. That the Messiah would come and relieve them, this nation, redeem them from the jackboot of the Romans. To put aright everything that had gone wrong. To bring them back to where they were. To bring a rightful king to the throne of David. That's what he prayed. And they all prayed that religiously. And I'm sure that Monday morning, it would seem maybe to be a Monday morning, it was early in the week anyway, that he stood with great anticipation, 
probably a bit nervous. He hadn't done it before. He had read the manual over and over and over again. And his, his other friends, his other priests would have told him, make sure you do this, make sure you do this. And don't linger in there too long. This is the holy place. And if you linger in there too long, we'll get very worried. You're in there on your own and you're praying for the nation. And as he closed his eyes and rehearsed his prayer for redemption, rehearsed his prayer just like Simeon and Anna, who we read about later, that the salvation of the Lord would come to this nation. And he finished his prayer and he opened his eyes and lo and behold, in front of him was an angel. He must have been so startled. And the angel says to him, fear not. And he says, I have, the God has heard your prayer. Some might think that he heard his prayer for, for a child. But he said, I've heard your prayer. I believe it's the prayer for salvation for the nation. I very much doubt if Zechariah felt it appropriate that he would be in the holy, holy place and burning incense and speaking on behalf of the nation and bring his own wishes. He was bringing the wishes of the nation. He said, I've heard your prayer. And, and Mary and Elizabeth's going to have a son. Just for an added measure, Elizabeth's going to have a son. And his name will be John. And he will be great before the Lord. And Zechariah is listening to what the angel says. And he's probably holding on grim death, whatever he could hold on to. Worried what was going to happen. A man who had known the Old Testament, who probably could recite by memory the Pentateuch, the first books, five books of the Bible. He'd understood what the prophets had said. He was waiting for Elijah to come and usher in the day of the Lord. And he says, how can that be? I'm old. I'm old. It can't be. And it must have been, Gabriel must have thought, and he stood back. The archangel, one sent from God, he said, I thought we picked the right guy here. This is someone who is righteous. This is someone who is living before the Lord. This is someone who is humble and is here every day. I thought I picked the right guy. I said, I don't believe you. Amazing. He just didn't believe what the word of the Lord said. And he said, I'm old. And Gabriel came back and said, I'm Gabriel. That must have been a moment. You know, he just made this feeble excuse to the creator of the universe the one who is holding all things by the word of his power the one who took dust from the very ground and breathed into it and man became a living soul and he's able and more than able that his word be fulfilled he's more than able to make a 70 year old woman maybe bring forth, bring forth a child he spoke to Sarah and Abraham and they were in the 90s and the 100 when Isaac was born he answered Hannah's prayer as he wept before, before Eli and wept. He answered Manoah's prayer and his wife for Samson. God did this. And Zechariah knew it. Yet when the message came to him, he made this paltry excuse, I am old. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. And because of your own belief, you won't speak. And it must have been an amazing moment when he walked out and the people standing outside as they did in their, um, in their Hebrew fashion with their eyes towards heaven, it's a wee bit risky for me, um, and their hands extended um, as they prayed. And you, you've been there waiting for Zechariah and you probably had a, a good estimate 
of when he should come out. They had years and years of experience of standing there. You know yourself, when someone prays, you sort of, at some point, and they pray a wee bit long, you sort of look down your words, and you go, guy's been praying for 10 minutes. You know, it sort of dawns on you. You know, and it must have dawned on them, where, where, where is Zachariah? What's happened to him? And they get, they're getting a bit restless, and they can't do much until he comes out and gives the priestly blessings and sends them on their way. And he comes out, and he's completely dumb. He can't speak, he's mute. And, and he makes all these gestures. They don't know what has happened. The interesting thing is he has to go to do it the rest of the week. And he's got to travel home to his hometown and meet Elizabeth and break the news in sign language, which he never learned. He couldn't speak. You can imagine coming home and, and Elizabeth is sort of making the evening meal at the end of the week, waiting to hear what his week was like in, in Jerusalem in the temple. And she says to him, well, Zachariah, how did it go this week? And the door closes and the bag drops and not a sound. She wonders, okay, okay, maybe he's just gone to the loo. A few minutes later, Zechariah, how'd your week go? Nothing. Can you imagine the task that he was going to explain to his wife, who was 70? We're going to have a baby. And an amazing, an amazing sort of conversation must have ensued that how he was going to convince Elizabeth that they were going to have a baby. Um, and he can't say anything for nine months. And Mary appears and he's sitting there and Mary and Elizabeth rejoice. And we have Mary's Magnificent. And he's sitting there. The baby is born. Eight days later they go and they give his name and to be circumcised. And he's still sitting there with all his family and his friends. And he reaches this crisis point and he's converted. So he had to make a decision. He had to decide if God's word was true. He had to stand up and write his name. He will be called John. As he looked around him and saw this um, girl from Nazareth, who we haven't really time to explore, um, three months pregnant. And she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. As he looked at his wife nursing, his elderly wife nursing his newborn baby, it suddenly dawned on him, this is the gospel. This is John, Elijah, and he worships God. You see, he went from that step, he took that step of knowing what God had said to him, and he had to act finally in faith. And that is the gospel, that is how we have to do it. We have to come to a point when we read our Bibles, we can see what God reveals through us, through his Bible, that we either have to be like Elijah or um, Zechariah and say, I don't believe it. I'm old and make excuses. Or just as we read about Mary, she says two things too, another thing too. I'm your servant. That's the response. She listened to what Gabriel had said. And the end of it, she made this step of faith. She was no more knowledgeable than Zechariah, possibly less. She was younger. She had the benefit of the priestly training. And she made that calculated step. I'm your servant. Let it be. Let it be. We can come to all the discussions of the day and we can say that science would contradict all of these things that no way can um, a virgin be pregnant. No way can a 70-year-old woman be pregnant. These are miracles. Science don't, doesn't prove miracles. Science proves something that is repetitive over and over again and it becomes a law. We observe it happening over and over again. A miracle is something that happens once or t- and you have to accept it and take God at his word. 
And that is what is called faith. It took as much faith for Zechariah to disbelieve Gabriel as it took for Mary to believe Gabriel. Because all the teaching, all the knowledge, he says, I still don't believe. But Mary did. And she said, let it be.